Are you passionate about creating a physical product, something you can touch, feel, or taste, and then get paid for it by those that love what you've created? Well, the Product Launch Rebel Podcast is the one for you, where you get insider tips on how to spot an opportunity, manufacture your product, get financing, and achieve the independence you've always dreamed about. It's time to crank it up with your host, product developer, investor, and founder of VentureSuperfly.com, John Benzik. Greetings, Product Launch Rebels, and welcome to the Product Launch Rebel Podcast. I'm John Benzik from VentureSuperfly.com, where we help double your entrepreneurial courage. Even if you don't know what you're doing, please visit the Venture Superfly website and check out the contact page to join our mailing list. Today, I'm interviewing Michael Tierney. He's the founder of a food company called Mikey's. And check this out. Michael has recently been added to the prominent Forbes 30 under 30 list. Very exciting. His flagship product line, Mikey's, Mikey's Muffins, was launched in retail in 2014. They are paleo-friendly, low-calorie English muffins. They have other food items as well. And to learn more about Mikey's, visit eatmikey's.com. Hello, Michael. Thanks for being here, and welcome to the Product Launch Rebel podcast. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. It's so great to have you. So, Michael, within this podcast, there are three segments. The first is called Give Me the Basics, which helps set the context about your company for our listeners. The second part is called Let's Get Personal, where we get into some of the more personal topics about what it's like to start a business. And the final part is what I call Tell Me How, where we'll get to the heart of the matter on issues that aspiring entrepreneurs want to know now to help them move forward. Michael, what do you think? Are you ready for some questions? Let's jump in. All right, here we go. Mike, before we get into the give me the basics questions, tell me, what is it like to be on the Forbes 30 under 30 list? How did that impact you? So that's a great opportunity, and I'm extremely honored to be selected for that short list. And I have to say, since that's come out, a few opportunities have come up, whether it's uh, private equity firms or venture capital firms or retailers or just consumers creating some buzz around Mikey's, which has been really exciting. And they have a pretty intertwined community uh, of really fabulous people that now I get to be a part of and reach out of and learn from and uh, kind of build with. So uh, it's pretty exciting. We're just kind of scratched the surface on it. So I'm sure there's a lot more to come, but uh, so far uh, it's been a real honor. Yeah, I bet it has. So Michael, tell us the story. How did you originally come up with the idea to start Mikey's? Sure. So uh, let's go back slightly before that. I've been in food for most of my life. I've been obsessed with cooking and eating for that matter. Uh, and I started working in restaurants when I was 13. I uh, couldn't even get paid. I just did it for free because I wanted to learn. And at that time, I figured, oh, my mom buys my clothes and puts a roof over my house. I don't really need money. So I'm happy to be here just to learn it and be part of the experience. Uh, so I've been in the food industry as long as I can remember, pretty much. And uh, out of high school, I went to the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, New York, and studied there for four years, got a bachelor's degree from CIA, not the cooler CIA in Langley, but 
the culinary school. And um, I worked at the French Laundry out in Napa Valley, uh, which is a ultra fine dining three Michelin star restaurant. And then I also worked at 11 Madison Park in New York City, which again is uh, at the top 10 in the world list. Actually, last year, I think they made number one. Um, and so my background has always revolved around food, not necessarily business or entrepreneurial ventures, but that was kind of the catalyst that got me into, uh, starting Mikey's, uh, 2014, I started doing some catering, uh, and that led to a small partnership with a health food store in Long Island, New York, where I'm from. And, uh, at one point, I think I had something like 30 different items in this store, I was making it, you know, all night long, driving it in my car in the morning to the store, getting paid out of the register. It was very clean. There were no deductions or chargebacks or uh, payment terms or anything like that. And uh, what we saw and the product range was super wide. We did everything or I did everything from frozen uh, vegan chocolate mousse to hand rolled gluten free ice cream cones to biscuits and scones and ready to eat meals and soups and all sorts of different items. There was no brand. There was really no packaging. Uh, everything was packed in, you know, to go containers with Avery printer stickers that were very to the point about what the product was. And I created these English muffins uh, that fit the paleo lifestyle. And what I saw is that in this small mom and pop health food store in Long Island, we were outperforming the major gluten-free brands. And I said, all right, there might be something here. So I shut down the 30 products and turned it into three, uh, which were the original English muffin, the toasted onion, and the cinnamon raisin. And took those to retail. I built some packaging around it, called the business Mikey's Muffins. I uh, did not have the foresight to think we'd ever make pizza crusts or tortillas or any of the things we make today. And so at some point, we tra transitioned from Mikey's Muffins to just Mikey's, because you can't have a Mikey's Muffin pizza crust. That's a little uh, little too wordy. Um, and I uh, was making the product and driving it around New York city and dropping it off at stores. And one thing kind of led to another. And today, fast forward about three years, we're in uh, about 5,000 retail doors nationwide, including, you know, Whole Foods, Walmart, Savory Albertson, Kroger, Sprouts, and, 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 and. So uh, it's been a, a very good ride so far. That is for sure. And so tell me, just sort of reiterate in a nutshell, what makes your brand so unique? The food and beverage industry is just so intensely competitive. How did you cut through the clutter among so many of those food brands on the shelf? Sure. So uh, gluten-free is clearly here to stay, right? It's not a fly-by-night fad or trend anymore. And what I noticed was there's this billion-dollar market around gluten-free except everyone's doing the same thing. And frankly, it's not that healthy for you. So from my perspective, gluten-free had already been through two iterations. The first iteration was just give me something that tastes as good as the box and you'll be able to sell it. And that was at the very beginning of this in like the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, and then the big brands today, like Udi's and Glutino and Rudy's and Canyon Bakehouse, all kind of decided at the same time or in somewhat close sequence to each other that uh, the best strategy was to make great tasting 
gluten-free items, but still only hinge on that single attribute. And the concept was if we can get mom or whoever does the shopping to buy one loaf of bread for the whole family, the celiacs or the gluten-frees in the household and everybody else, then they've won. And it's a great strategy, except it's not necessarily healthy. And so many people think that gluten-free immediately translates into better for you. And it's not necessarily the case. And so what you see in a lot of gluten-free breads is that they're single attribute items that really are no healthier for you than Wonder Bread, unless you happen to have a gluten intolerance or, uh, or celiac disease. So with Mikey's, the whole idea was to deliver real functional nutrition uh, and deliver more than just one attribute. So all of our products are certified paleo. All of our products are gluten, grain, soy, dairy-free. Uh, instead of resting on uh, cheaper inputs to make our products gluten-free, such as tapioca starch or rice flour, we use more wholesome ingredients, lower-carb ingredients like uh, almond flour or coconut. And... Um, and we've reached a few other markets that no one else has really thought about recently, which, for example, 1% of America is celiac. 10% of America is pre-diabetic or diabetic. They have no bread to eat. So we give them an option. Uh, grain-free is growing at a trajectory that is faster than what gluten-free grew at. We're touching that market, too. Paleo is the hottest lifestyle choice uh, in the U.S. right now. We're all over that community because all of our products are certified paleo. And that hinges into the CrossFit community, which is the fastest growing uh, workout and fitness trend, which is now backed by Reebok. So um, we've touched into so many different demographics that what we've done is just cast a much wider net than the conventional gluten-free bread options over the consumer base. And that's been the key to what we've done so far. It's amazing that you started out so successfully because most entrepreneurs go into business with these sets of assumptions and many of those assumption assumptions turn out to be different from what they expected and they have to make changes in order to survive but it sounds like you came out of the came out of the shoot sort of with just the right product at the right time yeah i mean look the timing was incredible. I definitely got really lucky around that. But I also was incubating 30 products at the same time, right? And so I was able to cherry pick out of that small little test. Let's call it a test that I was doing, even though that's not what I thought I was doing at the time. Uh, but out of that small business that I had started, I was able to cherry pick the ones that worked best and take them to retail. That doesn't mean we haven't made any mistakes or even a few mistakes. We've made tons of mistakes as I've, you know, tried to navigate this entrepreneurial space. But uh, I think it's really just about being able to adapt quickly and, and, uh, and move forward, which we've done a, a, a pretty good job at. So Michael, let's get personal on a few topics if we can. Many aspiring entrepreneurs don't know what they don't know before starting a business. They're sort of unconsciously incompetent in certain areas not as fully prepared as they thought they should be when starting a business. Before you started Mikey's, to what extent were your previous career skills and your knowledge aligned with the task of actually launching a food business on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being very aligned? How did your previous skills and knowledge fit with your new startup? It's, I'd say, you know, it's a three, four, five in that area. I think 
what we deliver really well based on my previous experience is taste, right? My whole life has been around taste and food, but I don't have any CPG or consumer product good background. So manufacturing, distribution, warehousing, trucking, retail, all of that stuff I had to learn on the fly. But at the end of the day, we still had a product that tasted great. And that was the backbone of what we did. So, I mean, I don't know how high you want to weight that, but I think it's been really important to our success so far. So, Michael, what is the number one lesson you think you've learned since starting Mikey's a few years ago? I think familiarizing myself with how the consumer product goods space works, understanding the system in terms of the way distribution works, the way retail timelines work, uh, what it takes to really bring a product to shelf, and then what it takes to make it successful on shelf, because those are very different things. Getting into the store is just a piece of the battle. I think that whole framework was uh, the biggest curve that I had to, to get through um, and something that I had no experience with prior to this. Yeah. And many entrepreneurs, including very successful ones, have regrets in doing things incorrectly early in their entrepreneurial journey. And I think those regrets can reveal valuable lessons to aspiring entrepreneurs. Since you started Mikey's, would you have approached the business differently if you could go back and do it over again? Sure. I think if you don't take a second and reflect on everything you've done and realize that there are plenty of imperfections in it, the next time around, you'll just continue to make the same mistakes. So for myself, there's plenty of things I would change. I mean, I think the key is if you're always working with good people and uh, you select good partners, um, you'll be able to be successful. And if you don't, it'll create unnecessary headaches that could have been avoided, um, whether that's in your manufacturing, your supply chain, your financial partners, whatever that is. Uh, definitely don't be in such a rush to just take the first thing in front of you and select people that you could see yourself having a long-term relationship with because these people monumentally affect your business's success. Yeah, that's good advice. It seems that 99 out of 100 people just talk about starting business, Michael, but they never start one. It's all show and no go. And starting a business is special and pretty unusual. What motivates a person like you to stop just talking about launching a business and actually go out and start a food company like Mikey's? Do you think that you're a creator at heart? Yeah, I've always been uh, creative and I'm not the right person to go to work and put the round peg in the round hole every day. I'm, I don't know if I have too much ADD or, or what it is that I need to constantly be doing something new. So doing an entrepreneurial venture made total sense for me. Every day is a new challenge uh, and a new kind of hill to run up and tackle. So for me, it made a lot of sense. Also the timing in my life was pretty ideal. I was in my early 20s. I had no mortgage. I had no wife or kids or any of that stuff. My risk profile was really low. Uh, and I wasn't walking away from a great, you know, six-figure career job to go down this path. So I would say uh, I had a pretty, my timing on it was was appropriate. Yeah, that's for sure. It's always great to start young that way. Michael, did your success surprise you? Uh, yeah, I think it's humbling every day that we continue to see consumers respond well to our products and love what we're doing and have retailers respond well to our products. I mean, I get excited about that every time I see it. 
and uh, and we've been seeing it for a few years now. And what have been your biggest joys or what are you most proud of since you launched the company? I think the response we get from consumers who uh, have to or choose to eat a specific lifestyle and they didn't have an option before or their kids didn't have an option before. I mean, the amount of times I've had mothers call me with small children who they say, you know, my kid's never been able to have pizza before. Thank God your product exists because now they can enjoy pizza just like the rest of their friends. That's really cool. I mean, I think that's really what makes this special is, is we're delivering something wholesome that really affects people's lives. And what has been your biggest frustration? I think my biggest frustration is... I think my biggest frustration has been understanding the timetables that it takes to make some of this stuff happen. I mean, you want to be in retail and in front of consumers tomorrow. And sometimes it takes six, eight, 12 months to make that happen within the review schedules of the powers to be at the retailers that we partner with. And that was something I had to adjust to and make sure that we weren't getting too far ahead of our skis uh, before we had the placement and, and we were able to deliver to the consumers. Sure. And Michael, many entrepreneurs, even seasoned ones, experience self-doubt as they go along their entrepreneurial journey. How much self-doubt have you had, if any, and maybe what triggers it and how have you dealt with it? So I think I do my best work uh, in the sight of failure instead of when everything's going perfect. So I doubt a lot of things because I want to continue to strive towards, you know, perfection or some pursuit of that, even if it doesn't exist. Uh, so I'm constantly questioning what we're doing and trying to fine tune, uh, all the, the different aspects of our business to try and continue to deliver the best products possible. And starting a business is very difficult, Michael, as you know. How has starting your own business changed you as a person, if at all? I think it changes your outlook on uh, what you're capable of doing on your own, right? I think there's a sense of fulfillment that you get from being able to do something that's completely yours. And there's also a sense of camaraderie in terms of you realize how many people you have to bring into the fold to make something really work and how much you have to rely on the the key assets in your team uh, and the teams that you deploy, whether it's at retail or, or through a, a partnership warehouse or broker or, or uh, distributor. And, uh, and balancing all of that has been something I guess I didn't really foresee, but uh, I've always been a people person. I think it's my best asset is my ability to really work well with people and collaborate and, and kind of drive teams and, and lead. And so that has been a, a big asset for me in building this business. And what have you learned most about yourself since starting Mikey's? I can't do everything alone. <laughs> I would say that's probably the first thing you learn. Uh, at some point you realize you need some help and the help is only going to make you better and it's okay to be the conductor of a very successful band than it is to try and play 12 instruments at once yeah and who has been most influential to you in your life either professionally or personally uh, professionally we just signed a deal with a new fund out of pennsylvania called factory 
And the group there has immense experience in this CPG food and beverage space. It's headed by a gentleman named Richard Thompson. And over the last six or seven months that Richard, Richard and I have worked together coming to this deal that happened a couple months ago, it was announced in September. Uh, he's been a huge influence in my career and, and where I think we can bring Mikey's and an incredible wealth of information and guidance from someone who's done this. I don't know how many times he's done this successfully already. Uh, having that sort of mentorship and partner, I uh, couldn't ask for anything more than that. Yeah, that's neat. How did they find you or how did you find them? We met through a uh, mutual friend at the Natural Products Expo West in Anaheim, which is the biggest uh, natural food and beverage show in the U.S., possibly even the world. And uh, they came by our booth on recommendation and we got to talking and they loved what we were doing with Mikey's and I loved what they had done and what they could bring to the table um, we've done several rounds of financing at Mikey's. It's no surprise that it, uh, it takes quite a bit of money to compete at this level with these bigger brands. And so, uh, we're, we're, we've raised money now three times, you know, in a friends and family, kind of a, a series A and a, a, call this a series B. Um, and to find a partner that brought so much more value to the table than just a checkbook was a huge asset. And I think that's a big recommendation for anyone who's starting a business. Uh, don't be quick to just take the easy money if it's out there, but really try and find someone who can bring more than just money to the table because those intangible assets are likely worth more than the check is. Michael, I want to go back to one of my original questions and dig a little bit deeper. And that is regarding the topic of motivation. You started in the food business when you were 13 or perhaps even earlier. That is just so incredibly unique about an individual. What do you think at your core was the main driver for you to have that sort of attitude and that moxie? I really like learning things. I like doing things. I'm not uh, the kind of person who can just go sit at the beach all day. I kind of sometimes wish I was, but uh I constantly thrive for information and many times in my life I've traded financial opportunity for learning opportunity for better or worse. And, uh, I think I continue to make those trades. I think, uh, you know, the ability to continue to, to educate yourself and learn about, uh, all different, you know, industries or, or facets is something that really fascinates and draws me in. So where do you think you got that? part of your personality? I definitely think some of that's genetic. Um, my grandfather started a silk screening business back in New York. Don't think he made it out of the sixth grade as a uh, Italian immigrant orphan to the United States. So talk about having a rough, you know, hand dealt to you. And uh, he built a really successful silk screening business where they did all the work for Grumman and some of the work for Ben and Jerry's printing and Snapple iced tea and a number of other major companies. And I think somewhere in there, that entrepreneurial zeal that he had uh, must've touched me real early. And I must've been really inspired by that because uh, I definitely feel like I'm tracking somewhat in those footsteps. 
So, Michael, here we are in the Tell Me How segment of the podcast, where we aim to get to the heart of the matter regarding key issues for aspiring entrepreneurs. Michael, let's talk about raising capital. You talked about that a few minutes ago, and you said that you did raise capital for Mikey's. Give us some ideas on how we can go about finding money for a startup. How, what were the steps that you took? Sure. So I think there are a few different avenues to raising money, assuming you can't uh, leverage your own wallet or a rich uncle or something that you have immediate access to. Uh, I think when you're kind of pre-net revenue or let's just say, you know, sub a million dollars in revenue, unless you have some IP protections, patented some things or some other tangible assets, really the first place to go to raise money is in a what we'll call a friends and family round. It's people you know and their immediate circles that you'll have to go to first. Um, as you continue to show success, at least in the, the consumer product goods space, and you're in that, you know, let's say 500000 to $2.5 million zone uh, in revenue, you can start to look at larger family offices. You could probably hire a small investment banker to help you raise money. And then as you continue to move past those zones, you know, you start to attract some of the venture capital firms or even private equity firms that are coming downstream uh, to invest in small cap companies like Mikey's. And uh, I'd say the biggest advice is that for us, raising money turned into a second full-time job. It is a lot of effort. It is something that can be discouraging if you don't say super, super optimistic. Um, you know, you, you're going to talk to a hundred people and you should maybe even more than that before you find the right partner who's got the right opportunity for you and your business. Um, kind of goes back to what I was saying about just don't take a check from anybody. Maybe at the beginning, that's fine. But as you get bigger and the partnerships are more meaningful uh, and the companies become more successful, uh, to try and align yourself with people who are in your industry, who have done this before, who can teach you a lot uh, is is so valuable. And, uh, and that's what we did when we aligned ourselves with factories. So, um, I mean, I'm taking my own advice in that sense. Did raising money always go smoothly? And no. what did you learn most from that experience? So raising money is not a smooth process. Like I said, you're going to have to talk to a lot of people and it creates a second full-time job. And not everyone's going to believe in your vision or what you're doing. That's okay. If you just stay true to what you're doing, try and learn from each of those scenarios. You know, if you get some good feedback from a potential investor, try and incorporate that so that the next investor or potential investor you talk to, you're a little bit more seasoned, you're a little bit more prepared. You can anticipate more questions and be on the button to answer them quickly. I mean, I learned so much through that process and it's kind of a stepping stone process if you've never raised money before. You walk in and you don't necessarily know what you need. Maybe you have a pitch deck uh, and some information, but you're not in a position where you're, you're well-seasoned enough to really answer all the poignant questions that might close the deal for you. But as you work through the process and you stay confident and you stay true to what you want to do uh, and what your brand is, um, I think you learn a lot through that process that eventually will lead you to the right person if you're if you're consistent and you're you know you you, you kind of keep the drive going to to raise capital. 
but it is a uh, it is a very demanding task. I think as I talk to my friends in this industry and other industries, a lot of people underestimated, myself included, how much time and effort it takes to raise capital. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about finding a manufacturer. But before I get into that, do you manufacture your own product or did you turn to an outside source for that? Oh, we use contract manufacturers. So we've never, besides when I was first making the stuff myself, we, we've never manufactured since then. How did you go about finding that partner? We've been through a few co-packers at this point. And um, again, it's a stepping stone process, right? When you're doing X amount of quality or quantity, the bigger manufacturers have no interest in talking to you. So your opportunities are pretty limited. And you're going to be working with people who are very hands-on. There's not a lot of automation, so there's a lot of cost involved. Uh, and then as you grow and you hit their ceilings, you open up opportunities to work with the next you know, tier of contract manufacturers. And then when you grow with them and things get a little bit more automated and production gets a little smoother and products become a little bit more refined and costs go down, you'll eventually tap their ceiling in terms of capacity, and then you continue to upgrade. Uh, and that's how we've done it so far. And now we're with a facility that can really grow us for, you know, the next couple of years, uh, thankfully, because that transition is always timely and costly. And, and uh, I bet it is. Yeah. What sort of issues or problems might a new entrepreneur expect to face in working with a new co-packer? I think there are a few things that uh, you need to be careful of when you work with a new co-packer. I think evaluating based on their credentials, you know, making sure, let's say we're in the food space, that they have the proper certifications for your retail and distributor partners is the first step in the vetting process. Understanding who else they manufacture for so you can get a sense of the quality of their products. Uh, getting some face time with their team, seeing if these are people that you really want to work with. And then understanding the costing model, whether that's just on the tolling or finished good cost for your products, but also who's procuring the packaging, who's doing ingredient procurement, where is the stuff stored, how much can they produce at a time, is it enough for you to grow? You don't want to go somewhere where day one you're 70% of their capacity because you've already, you're already sitting at their ceiling. Um, and you also don't want to go somewhere where you're 1% of their capacity because you're not important enough to get the service level that you probably need. So you want to find that Goldilocks contract manufacturer where you're 20 to 30% of their capacity or their book of business. Uh, you guys have a great relationship, but there's a way for you to grow with them. Um, and that everyone understands in the party who's responsible for what, because it's a lot more than just baking bread, right? Right. Now, when you started your business, it wasn't that long ago, 2014. That was only three years ago. Early on, how did you learn to approach retailers and what were those first approaches like? So I candidly love selling. I love going to retail meetings. Uh, and I did a lot of it via door knocking, uh, whether it was physically in person or cold calling or cold emailing or trying to leverage a distributor to get a retailer or a retailer to get a distributor. Um, that whole piece of it is... And it does have a snowball effect to it, right? It's, it's hard to get it going, but once you have it going 
it uh, it seems to go smoother because you have some credibility by where else you're sold, and other retailers feel comfortable bringing you in because you know there's a there's a feeling that if it's successful in these other chains, it's probably going to be successful here. Michael, for potential entrepreneurs or new entrepreneurs that really don't feel they're good at sales, do you have any tips for them about how to get better at that? Sure. I think understanding your product inside and out is key. Being able to talk to every aspect of it and understand why your product should be at the retail, what makes you different, where your white space is, why the retailer needs you and who the consumer is that you're servicing answers a lot of the questions for the retailer um, and gives you some confidence in your brand. And uh, I would say, you know, behind that, there are a lot of great sales forces and broker networks that you can leverage to help you get into the retailers, get the appointments, uh, secure the sale, kind of be with you through that process. And just because you're not, you know, prolific at sales doesn't mean that you can't be successful. I think there are a lot of assets out there that can be used and leveraged to help with that. How does a new food entrepreneur find these brokers and sales teams? So a good place to go to introduce yourself to the brokers and the sales forces of the world are the major food shows, whether that's the fancy food show, um, any of the distributor shows, the natural products expos. Most of them have booths there. Most of them are open to talking, and I know 99% of them are open to new clients. So uh, you'll probably start off on a regional level. You know, having a different sales broker or sales force in the different regions of the United States. And then as you grow your book of business and there's more products and there's more to do, you can probably move to a larger national broker who can handle all of your business from one spot. Let's talk about pricing, Michael. How did you go about setting the price for your product? Did you make any early mistakes on that? For better or worse, I tried to act like a big business out of the gun. I saw the ability to create margin down the road, but I had to generate enough sales to do it. So I was okay losing money up front because I wanted to be competitive at retail. And I think if you're not competitive at retail, you will struggle to get that retail placement. So if I tried to make full margin day one, we would have had a $10 box of English muffins or $12 box of English muffins that no one would ever buy, right? Because there's the reason, you know, McDonald's is successful is because there's a cost basis to the expectation. You pay a dollar, you get something, it fills the void of the need of that dollar. If that same cheeseburger was $100, no one would go there anymore. So for us, I wanted to make sure we were competitively priced out of the gate. And so we set our prices and backed in our costs. So that way we were aligned with the marketplace. I think that helped us get a lot of placement early because the retailers realized that we were in line with something in that category that they're already selling at that price point. And we delivered so many more attributes that it, it fit as a sell without having to compromise on cost. When you were making those decisions about pricing, did you have any internal or I should say informal or formal advisors that had a different point of view on that, perhaps advising you to set the price higher to demonstrate a premium price point to get that margin? Or was everybody sort of on board with the pricing strategy that you chose? 
No, I don't think everyone was on board from the beginning, but I had a bigger vision of this being a big brand. And to be a big brand, we had to start somewhere. And I didn't want to continue to go to retail to lower our prices because it would have just slowed our growth. I just wanted to get to where we were going. And so we had to eat the margin up front, but I could kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel, which was if we're manufacturing this much product, we can create this much margin because we've created this much efficiency in our model. And that's the way we went. Uh, I was not interested in trying to be boutique. I think that's why Mikey's is successful at Whole Foods and Walmart and, you know, some of the other conventional retailers where you would not necessarily expect a brand like ours to, to live and thrive. Um, I think it's because we came out with that pricing model early. Let's talk about creating awareness and demand for Mikey's or the marketing and sales aspects. Most startups have such small marketing budgets. How were you able to create consumer awareness and demand for the product on such small budgets? I assume you had small budgets going in. Yeah, we still have small budgets compared to Kraft you know, or any of the, the big, big CPG firms. But I think we are fortunate enough to be in a time where social media is so prevalent and it's relatively inexpensive. If you look at social media versus you know, TV or print ads from uh, a decade or two ago, that it makes ex accessing potential consumers a lot easier and a lot more cost efficient. I think the other thing is there's a lot of grassroots opportunity. I mean, when we first started in New York, I was going to CrossFit gyms uh, and hanging banners and doing tastings and sponsoring events. And it wouldn't cost us much, but it was great for brand awareness. We'd hand out some t-shirts. We'd hand out some boxes of product. I'd tell them they could go around the corner to whatever health food store and pick up our stuff. And, uh, and that kind of helped build it. As we got bigger, it was harder to keep up with the cost of doing all of those events. And we switched a lot of it to digital and, and price point driven promotions in store. But I definitely think that grassroots start helped a lot. Finally, Michael, did I miss any questions that you feel you'd like to provide answers to? Or do you have any closing pieces of advice for our aspiring entrepreneur listeners? As for advice, don't be discouraged because it is not an easy road. It is not uh, all sunshine and rainbows and it's a lot of work and you'll fall down a lot. And I think the ones that are successful are the ones that get up and keep going. And uh, I don't think anyone's had a smooth trajectory to entrepreneurial success. And I think we're still on that journey, you know, trying to work up that curve ourselves. But um, you, it, the determination of it, I think, is what separates the ability to succeed and not succeed. So uh, don't think we did everything right because we haven't. <laughs> and uh, it's just about how quickly you adapt and, and press on and, and stay confident behind what you're doing. Michael, where do you think you'll be in five or 10 years? What's in store for you and what sort of a legacy do you want to leave behind? That's a great question. And I don't uh, really look more than 48 hours ahead of me currently because there's so many things going on. But I love the space that we're in. I love being in consumer product goods. I love the ability to reach so many people with our products. And I obviously still love food. So I'm sure I'll be in and around this space with Mikey's and possibly some other uh, brands that I build along the way. Michael, you've been such a great guest offering some great stories and advice to our aspiring listeners today. Congratulations on your success, for your entrepreneurial courage. 
and for sharing your experiences with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Well, you've just listened to another episode of Product Launch Rebel featuring John Benzik of Venture Superfly. To download episodes of previous shows or for other entrepreneur-related resources, visit VentureSuperfly.com. Be sure to like Venture Superfly on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to Product Launch Rebel in iTunes. Join us for our next Product Launch Rebel episode, where we'll continue to reveal insider tips on how to launch and grow your physical product-based business.